Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am honored and so excited to have Peter Panagore on the show. Peter is an entrepreneur and ordained pastor, and he is an audible best-selling author of Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death is Just the Beginning. Peter graduated from Yale University, where he completed his Master's in Divinity with a focus on the practices and writings in the classics of Western mysticism. There's a lot more to Peter's bio that will be in. I feel I feel sort of strange, like just saying those few short words because there's so much more, but um, you will be able to find all of his bio in the show notes. So welcome to the program today, Peter. Thank you, Marla, nice to be here, appreciate it. It's wonder- wonderful to have you. And you know, I love, your book, um, Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death is Just the Beginning. So you can you tell us a little bit about how that book came about? Well, how the book came about? Yes. Sure. I, um, I, after. Well, your experience. Oh, the experience. Okay. Because there is a story yes, about how the book your, happened. Yeah, too, yes, but. I know. I just remembered that. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit about your near-death experience. Sure. Uh, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and I went on national student exchange to Montana State University in Bozeman for a year to go backpacking and mountaineering in western Montana, uh, also to ski. I was on the National Ski Patrol, and I got a, I got a gig at the local mountain, Bridger Bowl. Nice. And so I, but springtime, I decided not to go back to Boston, where I'm from, to go home for spring break because my family was suffering uh, the loss of my sister. She ran away uh, and broke my mom's heart and my dad became angry and I was in Montana to escape them. That's why I went on exchange so that I didn't have to be in the milieu of pain and suffering. And so when spring came around, I decided that I wasn't gonna go home and I wasn't gonna go to the beach. I was gonna go to the mountains and I, I, I went to the outdoor club found a poster on the wall from a guy named Tim who was looking for a partner to go spend eight days in the Canadian wilderness in British Columbia, snow caving, and then to do a, an ice climb across the border in Alberta in Banff Provincial Park. And so we did the wonderful backcountry ski snow cave for a few days, seven days, and then we finished it off with an ice climb. And I've been a, I've been, uh, I've been a Boy Scout I was, you know, until I was 18. Um, I'm not embarrassed to say that. (laughs) (laughs) You shouldn't. I'm not. (laughs) In in National Ski Patrol and backpacking and winter camping and skiing. I was an outdoor kid. And so, but I, and I'd done a a fair amount of rock climbing uh, in the East Coast. Uh, And, but I never done any ice climbing and I didn't have any gear. 
And so Tim had all the gear he needed and he helped me find gear. We borrowed and begged and bought what I had to on the cheap and helped me rig ourselves up in a month's time. And then we went on this trip and we get to this climb on the last day of our, the day before we're going to go home. And Tim was a certified lead climber. He'd just become a certified climber. And so we parked um, 70 yards away from the climb uh, on the Icefields Parkway. We hiked in. There were other teams on the ice that day. We ascended to uh, till, until sunset. And we, we were the last team on and the last team off. And we were the last team on the mountain because I couldn't find two ice axes. I could only find one ice axe and an ice hammer. And the hammer is usually used to put screws in and take screws out and chip at the ice but I climbed with it instead of just letting it dangle at my side. And so I had a hammer on one side, an ax on the other, and it slowed our climb because I could never suspend myself from the ax. I could never rest with one hand. One hand always had to grip. And so my forearms, both sides, burned out super fast. So that slowed our climb down significantly. And by the time we reached the top of the climb as the sun was dropping and the temperature went down about 30 degrees, we watched all the other teams stomp out. The sun went down, temperature dropped, hypothermia set in like instantly because the temperature got, well, it was 30 degrees colder and we were, we were wet from our climb and we'd eaten all our food and drunk all our water. And Tim pulled up the rope as fast as he could because we wanted to get out of there, but he laid it wrong and it became a tangled knot. I'm not sure it was... It was dark, no moon, starlight. We could see a little, but starlight. And the and the, the bitter ends got dropped into the rope somehow, and the whole thing became a knot. And and now we were in serious trouble. And so, and we knew this, and I knew this because my part of we each brought skill sets to the trip, and part of my skill right. set was first aid and wilderness uh, first aid and first responder. And so. I'm keenly aware of what's going on. Our body started shaking like a like a cartoon, like like the body's shaking to stay warm. Our jaws are clattering and, I'm, and I have to take off my gloves to untangle the rope in the knot and in the dark. And, and we're trying to speak with clattering jaw. And we decided that we were, we knew that we were going to die there because within 15 minutes, we're already beginning hypothermic. And we thought we are in deep trouble. And so what do we do? Do we try to survive the light and lean up and just, canoodle together up again, you know, combine our warmth pressed up against the rock because we didn't have any gear with us. Nobody brought sleeping bags up, arrows to close because it's a day climb. Right. And so we decided that if we did that, we were going to die for sure. And so we decided that if we were going to die for sure, we we're going to at least try to die getting off the mountain. And so after we got the rope undone and that took a couple hours, I don't really know how long it all took because I wasn't paying attention to the passage of time and checking my watch. Um, I was scared out of my mind. I, Tim and I were both super level-headed, and that was the other requirement for the trip. For him, his requirement, and for me, my requirement. My partner has to have no panic. Because when you're in the wilderness, even if you're just snow caving in the middle of the winter and it's 50 below at night, there's no place for panic because it'll kill you. And so we both kept our heads, which is what saved our lives ultimately. Wow. And so Tim feels super responsible, responsible for this because he approved my gear and I, but I also kind of talked him into it. So we're kind of in this together. So we get the rope up, we tie off to each other, we make our traverse 
in the dark on the starlight and there's 10 bazillion stars in the sky and they're all sorts of colors and and it's so beautiful um but we were petrified and so we get to the bottom and we're in an area that's like um the 16 by 16 say i mean i don't know the measurements but it's a it's a fairly big area about four feet of snow and the rope's up above us and we grab the rope and i pull it because i'm the last one down and the, the rope is stuck and then Tim grums over and he pulls the rope with me and the rope is frozen to the freaking tree and we can't get it free with all hang dangling on one side with all our weight. And, and so we're, we're in snow up to our knees. And at this point, our hypothermia hypothermia begins to uh, progress into uh, we lose our coordination. Now we're falling we're, we can't walk in the snow. We're falling over. We're, we're not really able to control our motions. Our lips are freezing, our feet are blocks of ice. We're on this ledge and the, the rope is stuck and we're losing our capacity for cognitive function and our lips are freezing. Our, it's difficult to speak to move our jaws. So our lips are freezing and we decide, plus we decide not to speak to each other unless we have to, because every single motion that we make, every tumble that we make, every, every yank on the rope consumes the little energy that we have. And we know that there's this like proportion between the energy of our, of our, of the, we, the capacity to move forward with the energy we have and our death. And the, you know, and, and plus we're getting colder all the time. And so was your mind going crazy? I was in total panic, but in my head, but in my actions, not at all. I'm, I'm like climbing. Climbing is all about focus. It's all about staying absolutely. It's very Zen. Actually, it's yeah. about staying completely in the moment where you are not only where you are in the moment, but where you are on the cliff. You can't be above yourself or below yourself. You've got to be right where you are in your next move. Right. And so the whole, the whole trip was all about that. So we're kind of in this meditative state of single minded focus. And so I was stuffing down my panic while I was, uh, it, making myself courageous and in digging deeper, deeper into my willpower to, in order to do all of those things, to survive, right. to control my fear and to move forward. And so, so Tim's, we can't get the rope free. And Tim finally says, there's only one thing we can do and that's to go back up. And so he gets up maybe 20 or 30 feet. Um, and he yells falling. And I, and he comes flying down, the rope's free, and I roll out of the way and he lands, but it's four feet of snow. So poof, soft landing, kind of lands half on me, but everything's okay. And my hypothermia continues to advance. And now I, I, uh, I get hot. And when you get hot, it's a, it's a, it's a, a temperature misunderstanding of your brain. It thinks your body's hot. It feels like all your blood rushes into your core to save your heart and save your lungs because you can expend your fingers, but you can't expend your heart. And, but I got so hot. I started to sweat. I felt like I was sweating. I don't know that I was sweating. It just felt like I was like raging hot. And so I unzipped my coat, which exposes me to more cold. And in my head, I'm like ski patrol training, keep your, stay warm, keep them yeah, warm. Yeah. They're going to want to open their coat. Don't let them. But I was like, I, I'm opening my coat. So I open my coat and, um, and I'm warm for the first time. And I begin to realize, cause I have enough mind left that this is it. I'm going to die and there's nothing I can do about it.
I'm, I, that's it. I'm stuck here. And so I remember looking off and seeing the beauty of the mountain across the way and the ice flowing down and the beautiful stars and, and this peace settled over me. I'm still pulling on the rope, but this peace settles over me. And I start thinking about my parents. I start thinking about my sisters and my brother. And I start thinking about God. And I, and I realize I'm okay to die. I'm all right. I can die. And, and then I began to fall asleep and I would fall asleep and collapse onto the rock. I would like fall asleep, lose consciousness, fall to the rock, smack the rock, wake up and stand back up again and repeat this process. And then oh I stand up and I'm, I am terrified. Okay. I've been terrified all night and I've been driving my will. And now I'm, I've accepted my circumstances and I stand back up this one time. And now I have the last thing that happens in hypothermia, which is that you get tunnel vision. And my vision becomes a tunnel vision, like a, like a fade to black on a stage spotlight. And this thing just starts closing and closing and closing and closing. And I remember, and I'm like, what is this? I'd never seen such a thing in my life. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm looking around. I kind of glance at Tim and I glance back and it goes black. And I think, oh, it's black. And I think, why am I still conscious? I, I'm not asleep. Why? I can't see. I don't feel like I'm standing. I haven't collapsed. I don't understand what's going on. And so I'm in a, kind of this confused state trying to figure out what was going on to me. And then my, my vision expanded like this. I, I could suddenly, like a veil had lifted and there was this incredibly distant darkness that was, that filled my entire vision. But it wasn't a darkness like I couldn't like, like in a dark room that you can't see your hand in front of your face. It was dark, right. darkness like I could see all the way to the end of it or what I thought was the end of it. And way far in the distance was like a pinprick of light. And this pinprick of light came rushing at me at a faster than the speed of light from this incredible distance. And it communicated to me without language, I'm taking you. And I, th and I said in my mind, I said, I don't know where I am or what's going on, but you're not taking me. And I put up and you were totally mindful. I was completely aware of what's totally going on. Aware. I, I, I didn't yeah. understand what was going on. Yes. But yes. I was aware. You're totally aware. Totally aware. Yes. And so I took all my willpower that I dug all night long, this great amount of drive, space for drive that, that I that I, I still have that has that has never gone away. That's still got that. And so I dig way down in the bottom of that when I push it up like a will, I'm willing a wall against this thing. And, and it, 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 as it rushes toward me, it becomes more of a contained, it gets bigger, but it becomes more localized. And, and, and it just communicates. And from the time I saw it to the time it came was the length of the time it takes me to say, I'm taking you. And it was just like, boom. And I'm like, no. And I'm like, pop out, I go. I just plucked. And I and and up to the being plucked, I was fierce, and then contentment, and then comfort, and then ah, oh, this is this is comfortable, and whew, carried in this in this wide expanse became uh, stayed wide, but it also became tunnel. And I was swept up by this intelligence, this all-powerful intelligence. And it would be like getting caught in a, in a river of comfort, but over which I had no control. 
I'm, I'm rushing down this river and I'm, and I'm, I'm content, but I can't change anything. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm popped into this infinite, eternal, uh, darkness that's illuminated. And it's a, it's a, it's a place of contradiction and paradox and timelessness and everything I, I, I tell the story as if it's a sequence, but there's no sequence because it's all yes. time and no time. And I am popped out to this thing and the intelligence, this, this localized entity is gone, but I'm in the middle of this vast, bigger than the universe expanse of contentment. I'm, I'm now, and I, I sense myself no longer having any DNA, no body, no bones, no brain. I am this expanded orb. It was like, it was like I had this collapsed balloon and, and suddenly I'm, I'm blown up to my true size and now I'm my true size. And my first understanding is, is I'm, this is me. This is me. And it's, How did I not and know? It's always been me. It's always been me. This is what I am. I've never been that other thing. And now I, I don't, all of my senses are all integrated. So my thinking and my brain and my eyes and my nose and my ears and my touch, it's all one thing. I, I can see in every direction at once. Um, and I can, I can see, I can even see myself sort of from the outside and the inside simultaneously. So I have this sense of, of, but I'm still contained inside this, this, this consciousness is me, but I can also right. sort of see this thing. And, and then uh, like a portal opens in front of me, like a gigantic doorway or a gateway. And, and it's, and I say it's in front of me, but I, re- I didn't have a front. Yes. I, 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 every side of me was the front. And, uh, but, on, but this thing opens up and there's like this long, arcing tunnel that's defined like a hallway that goes way far away in this like the curvature of the of the earth like this long arcing distance but i can see to the end of it and or what i think is the end of it and over the the gateway is this this shimmering transparent translucent flow that i can see through and also seems that i can't see through and so i reach with myself and i touch this this entry and it's it's all living capital a capital l it's all life it's all oneness of being it's it's love and beauty and joy it's life itself and it flows into me and infills me and i have all these things happen at once i hear my name called which isn't peter it's like i hear that my soul name i know it's my soul name it has no language no way to express this i see the the long eternal everlasting tail of my soul the length of my soul and i see the moment of my creation being called into being as like an individuated photon of light from a much greater mass of light and i hear my name being called in my creation which is timeless and i understand that i am creature and this is creator and that i am utterly and completely known and there is nothing about me unknown and and i see i see like peter as this micron thin sheathing on the very top and i see other sheathings bifurcating my soul and but i can't see what they are or where they are but i know that they are like this other thing that's yes. that seems i still have some self identity with but i am 
I am this other, I am this soul. And then I, as back to my self-identity, I see Peter's, every pain that Peter has ever given away in his entire life, all of the suffering I had ever caused to everybody from their point of view, whether I intended to cause them pain, which there was plenty of that, um, and plenty of unintended pain, and I felt it from their perspective. I saw what had happened to them. I, I saw what I did to them from their point of view, and I felt their pain. And it turned out that the pain that I gave them was 10,000 times greater than the pain that I thought that I gave them, and that I suffered their 10,000 times pain. So I'm actually in the pain that I gave them, right. juxtaposed right. to um, my rationalizations and reasons for causing them that pain. And I judged myself guilty. And, and, and meanwhile, and shameful, but and so I was shown this about myself. I, I self-judged, I was not judged, yes. I was self-judged, but it was in comparison and relationship um, in, in, in two ways. It was in relationship to the ultimate purity of divine eternal love. And so in, in relationship to that immensity, I was, I was ashamed of that I had caused pain it, when it's kind of like when your dad says to you, you disappointed me. Right. I think everybody can relate to that. <laughs> and so I was totally crushed, not because of what I had done, because I could, I had this other perspective. I could see all humanity's sins with, with the same as mine. And, and the voice, in terms of their, that if you don't live, if you live, you cause pain. You cannot be a human being and not cause yes. pain. That's it's part of the human condition. It's the human condition. And so there's a great equality among right. us for that in comparison to the infinity of the purity of being. And so all of us, so, you know, the Christians, they say you all fall short of the love of God. Well, we fall short of the perfection, but not of the love. Um, yes. And so the, the, I understood that there was no um, scale of sin, that there's nobody so worse this, than others. So the deep, profound sadness, of course, it was seeing the pain that, that you had caused, but even more so, since that was kind of equalized, because that is part of the human condition, what the profound sadness was that you had disappointed. Yeah, the guilt, divine. it was guilt. Yes, I was yes, like, yes. I am shameful, I'm full of shame and I am guilty. And, right. but, the, but the voice, there's this voice speaking to me and this voice is this entire infinity, all of this, I, the voice is the infinity, but it also seems to be hyper-localized and I can't, right. I can see everything, but I can't see that origin of where it's speaking from. And it's speaking outside of me and inside of me. And it's saying, I love you. I made you. I called you into being. I'm creator. You are a creature. I made you like this. I've known everything about you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I love you. I love you. Welcome to my love. I love you. And I accepted the love. And it, it seemed to me the, a couple of things in, in reflection, the, um, the love that I carried 
things with me. I carried all the pain I gave away, but I also carried all the love I'd given away in my life and all the love that was given to me. And that seemed to be what enabled me to recognize the love of the divine, even though I was in what uh, Catherine Genoa calls the, the purgative fire of divine love. I was cleansed of all the things I didn't need. And, and, and when I was forgiven, I was infilled then to this expansion of my capacity of this combination of, of well, I was in the unity of, of the oneness of being. And it was, it was joy and bliss and love and wholeness and healing and understanding and wisdom and knowledge, adoration, love, paradise, uh, the list. I could keep going. It's all, but all these things, we truth, we fragment all these things here, but they were all one thing. And I've summarized it in, in two words here. One is beauty and the other more operatively and importantly is love. And so all of these, all of these components were all one livingness. And I was infilled with this bliss and adoration and, welcome and i said with a, telepathically no language because i didn't have any brain so there's no conversation it's all instant communication just knowing yes. and i said uh, am i dead and the voice said yes you're dead and i said but you know i haven't gone through the door yet and the voice said but you you're welcome come it's time come home and i said um but my parents are suffering and if I go, they're going to lose another child and my mom's already broken and what's going to happen. And in an instant I was swept into uh, to the, like the edge of the universe at uh, the edge of heaven. And I was able to look down onto the earth, which seemed like a hologram to me. And I could see every seven, every one of the 7 billion people, every one of them, like individuated, like I could see their hair and their eyes and, and, and watch them what they were doing all at once in this one moment of, of time. And everything was covered with this veil. And the voice said to me, and I could see my parents' faces in particular. And the voice said to me, in the way that you now know that I love you and that I have always loved you, I love everyone that way. And that the, the love that I felt, it was so profound that that word doesn't even come close. It's like yes. all of the love of all of the, all of the creatures who've ever lived on earth, all combined into one place, multiplied by a septillion. It was, it's it, expansive and massive and healing and whole and, and welcoming and, 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 saving and and that's so beautiful i love you 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 describe it so well because i've interviewed some other people who've had near-death experiences and they and it's ineffable it's It's so hard to explain but you but but you are doing a fantastic job by i mean i can just i can just visualize and just I don't know. It's just really touching my heart. Were you? Did you see any other beings while while you were in that state? No, no I saw. People ask me that. Did you see your auntie or somebody? And no, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> right. I, didn't. I, I I was in the presence of all love there is. Yes. I lacked yes. nothing. Right. I, so you saw your parents. I saw my parents, and I saw that everyone. Every I felt like I was the I was the favorite child. I felt like I was the particularly loved one, um, but I but I understood in that everyone was the particularly loved one, 
Everyone was beloved and, and that everyone will be well when they leave earth and that nobody can see through the veil. It thins here and there, but nobody could see what I could see, the totality of the oneness of love and, uh, for every single known human being. And, and everyone was being welcomed home in the end. And I saw my parents' faces. I could see their, I could see their current suffering. And I also could see the length of their life to come without me and their suffering. And so I said, um, I, I, the God said, so your parents are going to be well. When they die, when their timeline dies, I saw their timeline without me because it was shown to me. When their timeline ends, this is what they will see. They will be in the, in the place of healing and belovedness as if their suffering never existed, as if there was no suffering, all forgotten, all un, all un, un just un, undone. I think this is a great place to end our interview for today. However, Peter will be back next week to continue his fascinating story. Hope to see you then. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.